1432 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley on a special Wednesday edition. Midweek Meg. Midweek Meg. And I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh. Hi, Ben. Hi. How are you? You were for the ringer. I didn't say that part. That's where you work. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) How's it going? It's going okay. It's, It's not my usual recording day. Thank you to Sam for being flexible so that I can get on a plane. Mm-hmm. At an ungodly hour on Friday and head to Fall League. Yeah, for yeah. a good reason. Yeah. It's not fun to get up super early for a flight, but when you're taking that flight so you can go to the Arizona Fall League, it makes it worth it. it. makes it a little easier to get up. Yes, it, it changes the complexion of the early morning pretty <laughs> substantially. I will take a brief moment to just remind folks who are interested in the Fall League, uh, especially if they're going the, the board has a special Arizona Fall League seasonal tab mm. with all of the – this is not every player who will be in Fall League. These are all of the dudes who are currently on the board, so all of the most relevant prospects. You can click on over there and see what teams they're on and Eric and Kylie's reports and video if they have it, which they do for most of these guys. So if you're going to uh, be at one of these ballparks in Arizona and you're like, hey, who's that dude? I don't know about him. You can just uh, navigate over to the board board on your phone and it's all right there for you easy those guys do good work as does sean dolnar and david appleman who built the board good stuff so i mentioned that i was going to the tuesday yankees angels game and i was sort of bummed because i had planned to go to that game in part because i thought i would get to see trout and otani and Mm -hmm. i did not I was doing a reunion of the 2009 Yankees baseball operations interns. Mm. A lot of us are still in the area, so we all went to a game together and complained about how we didn't get World Series rings, and it was sort of fun to see everyone and remember that time in my life, but did not get to see Trout, did not get to see Otani, did get to see Luis Severino making his season debut. And it was pretty impressive. I mean, accounting for the fact that, again, the Angels lineup had very few good hitters in it because Justin Upton is done for the year two. Tommy Lestella has been out forever. So this was a very patchwork piecemeal lineup. But Severino looked good, just independent of the quality of competition. He was throwing pretty hard. He was getting some swinging strikes. Jay Jaffe wrote about this for Fangrass. But Severino threw about 67 pitches and he looked a little bit better after the first inning. He didn't throw quite as hard, I guess, as his previous season average from last year, but he was getting up to like 99. The stuff was clearly pretty good. And this is a big boost to the Yankees, potentially. You have to wonder when you get a guy back this late in the season— what role he'll play in the playoffs. And I'm writing something for later this week about guys who come back really late in the season and have gone on to play significant roles in October. But Yankees got him back. They got Jordan Montgomery back. That didn't go quite so well. And then they got Dylan Batances back, which went well for one game and then went 
it as poorly as it could in the next game because he immediately hurt himself again with a partially torn Achilles and now he's done for the year and that is super sad especially like heading into free agency and it looked like he might be able to salvage something from this season and then it disappeared as quickly as it had come but Severino coming back is a, a pretty big boon to that staff and Based on Aaron Boone's recent comments, he has mentioned like piggybacking starters and just going really bullpen heavy, I guess, aside from James Paxton, who's been very good for the past six weeks or so. That staff could really just kind of do all bullpen games for the playoffs or just like starters going two or three innings, four innings maybe, and then bringing in the bullpen. It's going to be a whole lot of that from the Yankees staff and probably not just the Yankees staff, but especially the Yankees staff this postseason. Yeah, if they can get, you know, an extra inning or two out of Severino over the course of an entire month, that might end up making a really significant difference in their ability to stick in October. You always have that moment. I I watched this start um, from the comfort of my home in very rainy Seattle. And you always have that moment when a guy's coming back, especially late, uh, where you're you're very nervous to see the velocity readings. You're just, yeah. I was just sitting there like, oh no, what's gonna happen? And <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, he threw a he threw a changeup for his his first pitch and then like a true, you know, four seamer for a second and the you know, the little flame shoot. He was throwing like ninety seven. I was like, Okay, this is okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he'd had a couple of tune ups in AAA, but it's like it's that strange thing where they come back so late, you know, they start to mm-hmm. run up into not having a place to really do rehab games. Yeah. Um, you know, so I it was it was a great relief even though he did manage to walk Brian Goodwin. So yeah, yes. One of the guys I went to the game with still works for the Yankees. He was actually good enough at his job to get hired and (laughs) stay there and get promoted over the past decade. And I could see him just glancing like his eyes were darting to the velocity reading on the board after every single pitch because for him, this this really mattered. This was something significant. And I'm sure he was just like twitching, not being able to look at the live data that he probably (laughs) has access to and just having to be out there among the masses looking at a single number but those numbers were pretty reassuring yeah it'll be man i i just i i still think that in all likelihood and granted there are other good teams that are in the al field and anything can happen in a short series and but you just figure that if there is if we look back at the end of the season and the yankees have won a world series we're going to look back on that boon quote about them you know being able to mix and match and get creative and just be like it'll it'll be like in that movie the snowman right like i gave you all the clues you could have saved her (laughs) it's just like that it's just like a terrible murder movie except that it'll be the yankees against the entire uh you know the rest of the majors so yeah and with stanton almost back now it's gonna be such a strange yankees postseason roster i don't know exactly what it'll look like because they still have time for like a couple guys to get hurt and a couple other guys to come back before the regular season ends but the team that is actually competing in October is going to be pretty different from the team that actually got them there. And some guys who played big roles in getting them to this point probably will not play big roles in the postseason and vice versa. So it's going to be strange. Yeah, it is a weird reality of the 2019 Yankees that there are going to be dudes who probably don't make that postseason roster. We're like, but that guy's so good Mm -hmm. now somehow. Yeah. Yeah. What an odd thing. 
Speaking of uh, an ex-Yankee, one guy that the Yankees did not get the most out of in recent years was Sonny Gray, which sort of stands in stark contrast to their getting career years out of every other single player this season. But Sonny Gray, I saw a fun fact about him, and I kind of questioned it when I saw it. I thought it was lying, as all fun facts do, and then I was sort of surprised when I looked it up. So Sonny Gray made his 32nd consecutive start in which he allowed six hits or fewer, which is a new major league record excluding openers, because if you count openers, Ryan Stanek just blows everyone else away in that category. But he passed Nolan Ryan, which sounds very impressive. And when Sonny Gray was told that he had passed Nolan Ryan, he himself was sort of overwhelmed, he said, to be mentioned in the same sentence as one of the most competitive people that have played this game. It's crazy. I don't know what I think about it, to be honest with you. You might have to ask me tomorrow. I don't know what he thinks about it today. But I was pretty impressed, except that I thought, well, Nolan Ryan, workhorse, this stat probably is deceiving us because in order to allow six hits or fewer as a starter, yeah, probably you have to be pretty good at limiting hits, but also it matters how deep you go into the games. And so if you're not throwing complete games, then that's going to make it easier to not allow seven hits or more. And so I figured that Nolan Ryan, during his streak of 31 consecutive starts that was just snapped, probably went way deeper into games and threw many more innings. But it turns out that's not the case, actually, because this was old, late career Nolan Ryan when he was like 44, 45. This was from May 1st, 1991 to June 1st, 1992. And Nolan Ryan threw 178 innings in his 31 starts. Gray threw 179 and two-thirds innings in his 32 starts. So essentially the same number of innings and innings per start, pretty pretty much equivalent. So my apologies to the fun fact generators for questioning them. Although, of course, there is still an era effect here in sure. that this is kind of a low batting average year. That makes it a little bit easier. So were 1991 and 1992. Those were before the big offensive explosion of the 1990s. So the league batting average was pretty similar then to what it is now. And also there are lots of guys who just never got within spitting distance of the streak because they were throwing complete games every time or going really deep into games and allowing more hits. So it does still sort of lie. But the fact that he passed Nolan Ryan is somewhat impressive, although maybe earlier in his career, Nolan Ryan had streaks that were snapped because at that point he was throwing 300 innings a year or whatever. So anyway, just wanted to to mention that since we are very vigilant these days about policing fun facts. I like very much that Sonny Gray took a moment to say, I might need to think about what this means to me and get back to you. Yeah. How many, the just... world would be so much better if more people were like, I don't know how that makes me feel. I don't know what I think about that. I'm going to think about it and get back to you. Yeah, take your time, collect yeah. your thoughts. Sam says that to me sometimes when I ask him a question and he's like, I don't know about that. I, I've got to take some time. Sometimes he'll answer a listener email and just be like, i got to go on a long walk and think about that and uh, make up my mind. And yeah, we should probably all aspire to taking some time to reflect on what it means when we do something better than Nolan Ryan. Yeah, and that he would, you know appreciate like i mean obviously he knows who nolan ryan is i don't mean to imply that sunny gray doesn't but it's like yeah that is a weighty thing and it might be a thing you have to sit with for a moment to think Mm -hmm. about 
you know, where he's been versus where he is. I was looking while you were chatting. I was just looking at some of his like year over year um, stats because, you know, obviously we know that Sonny Gray is having a much better year this year than last year. And you wonder why. And then you look at his like his pitch type values and you're like, oh, it's because everything's better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just literally that everything's better this year. So he's yeah. had quite the turnaround and it has to feel incredible to him on its own, let alone that it puts him in elite company. It just seems like a thing that someone would want to take a beat to reflect upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's thrown more sliders this year. A right? lot more. A, yeah. yeah, and that was a thing when he was with the Yankees, and he said they wanted him to throw yeah. more breaking balls, but he didn't have a good one. But I guess the Reds have gotten through to him yeah. and helped him with that. And also there's been some visualization stuff that he is doing differently. So yep. another thing is that Nolan Ryan was like a legendary hit preventer. So it's kind of cool to pass Nolan Ryan in this category because yeah. he was someone who often led the league or the majors in like, hits allowed per nine innings he walked a ton of guys he allowed a lot of base runners anyway but he was very good at preventing hits so if you want to set a record for not allowing a lot of hits that would be a good guy to pass but yeah 265 career BABIP for Nolan Ryan that is uh, that's pretty good that'll get you to the hall of fame yeah that's pretty good I wonder if I will ever be able to correctly gauge Sonny Gray's age (laughs) I don't think I will I think I'll always think he's younger than he is what is he like 30 ish? He he will be 30 in November. His uh-huh. birthday is November 7th, according to our player pages. I think it's the combination of having a, a somewhat boyish uh, look and also being named Sonny. <laughs> yeah. What's the name that you think of as a young person's name? So I'm That's always going to think that he's like perpetually 25. So congrats, Sonny Gray. It's like not a bad thing, I suppose. Yeah. Do you have to stop going by Sonny at a certain <laughs> age? Is your, your Sonny card revoked when you, I guess there are older people who go by Sonny, right? There's, sure. There's Sonny Boy Williamson. I don't know. The, I guess you can be Sonny once a Sonny, always a, a Sonny. But it would appear that Sonny is his full name per baseball reference is Sonny Douglas Gray, Douglas being like a grown person's name. Uh-huh. I remember when I learned that Sonny Gray had a son, and I found that funny for at least a minute. <laughs> Sonny Junior. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know what his kid's name is, but I also at the time was like, "You're not old enough to have a child. You are but a child yourself." And he was like, "No, I'm like a grown person. What are you talking about?" Yeah. Because I was at that game, I was not following along with other games very closely, and so I was not really paying attention to the Cubs-Reds game in which, I guess this was the game in which Sonny Gray set that record, but also it was the game in which Yu Darvish started by striking out everyone, and I don't know if this was a thing on Twitter as it was happening, but he was very much on pace to to have the record-setting strikeout game, because he had 11 strikeouts in the first four innings, and he hadn't thrown that many pitches, I don't think. His pace, it seemed like he'd have a reasonable shot to do it. And then he ended up with only two more in his seven innings. So he just sort of stopped striking guys out. But it looked like he was very much on the path to doing that. And he did do it over his previous nine innings. He struck out 24 guys yeah. over a nine-inning span, which is pretty impressive, but not all within one game. So sort of disappointing that he didn't keep up that pace, but that must have been exciting to follow in real time. 
yeah, I kind of checked in and out on that game as I want to do. I did manage to tune in just in time to watch Sunny Gray uh, single, <laughs> which was sort of funny. But yes, he looked he looked quite good. I think if you're a Cubs fan, you have to be encouraged by the the turnaround that he's enjoyed lately because it's yes. been significant, notable yeah, for a team on the on the edges of of the postseason. Especially because the Cubs right now are tied for a wild card spot. There is quite a chance that they will need to win that one game to advance if they are even lucky enough to get to that point. I know Jay Jaffe is having a field day. He's so excited. Team Entropy tiebreaker scenarios. They're looking pretty good right now. Yeah, Jay had a Team Entropy had a a good night. I say everyone (laughs) embrace the chaos. God, let Jay show you how. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Cardinals are only two games up in the Central right now. You've got the Brewers and the Cubs tied because the Brewers never lose anymore without Christian (laughs) Yelich. So weird. They just don't lose in September. Oh, well. Yeah, it's it's been pretty fun, and there's like, what, 11 games to go for all or most of those teams, and the Cardinals and Cubs will be playing each other for like seven of them. That's going to be pretty fun. <laughs> yes, very fun. It It is. I watched part of that Brewers game as well. You'll be unsurprised to learn that I did that, given that in addition to them getting their arguably their best starter back, I wanted to check in on that business uh, that Chris Paddock was starting. So yeah. I had to check in on on. The sheriff, who is now mm-hmm. done for the season, unsurprisingly, given how many innings he's thrown in the past. But it was kind of nice that they actually got a player back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we've been lo- we've been losing all these guys, and it's mm-hmm. very sad. And so it's just kind of nice to have uh, have somebody come back. <laughs> yeah, Blake Snell came back too. Yeah, some, some guys are coming and back, he, and he looked good. Yeah, he yeah. did. And the Razor are getting other guys back too. Yeah, they, they are. Know. Did you, in your, um, in the midst of your reunion, have occasion to check in on the very, very long game that the Giants and the Red Sox played? <laughs> I, I was home by that point. I guess and that's true. <laughs> yeah, I was following along with that. That was a very, very long game and an extremely September expanded rosters game too. <laughs> <laughs> I did not start watching that game until it got into extras because I was watching other stuff. But it's just. There were, I, I think by my count, there were 48 players that were used in that game, <laughs> 24 pitchers. Uh-huh. Baseball Reference had the total pitch count at 547 pitches thrown. Oh, my goodness. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. 24 pitchers. I think I saw that that tied a major league record. Yes, I think that's right. And Stephen Vogt set a major league record for the most pitchers caught in one game, 13, which will be tough to break with September rosters slimming down next season. So. And they didn't, I don't think they, I think they were out. They were out. Couldn't have had any more, maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah, that went a very long time. It had a nice moment. It had the, the Mike Yastrzemski home run, which was really cool. The Yastrzemski homer in Fenway. Yeah. And there are tweets showing like side-by-side views of Yaz and Yaz Jr. Or Yaz very much Jr. <laughs> Two generations removed Yaz. Both hitting home runs in Fenway with somewhat similar looking swings. That was kind of cool. Yeah. Kevin Biggio also had the cycle this yeah. night, which uh, he became the second son of a big league father who both had cycles after the wards, the Biggios both cycled too, which is kind of cool. So good night for sons doing things that their dads or granddads also did. But yeah, that game went on way, way, way after that home run was hit. And <laughs> I did not 
watch it, I don't know what it was like for the players slogging through that with really nothing at stake at all at this point in the season. I will. I think the person who was the most obviously expressive, well, there was a moment where Brock Holt could have ended the game, but uh, grounded out with the bases loaded. So in uh, an inning, who knows when. It happened very late. He was mad. You could see him do some swears on TV. But Bruce Bochy was really the most expressive of the lot. He kept taking his hat off and rubbing his eyes and looking <laughs> mad, and he was ready to go home. Mm-hmm. I I had occasion over the weekend to watch – uh, in person with some high school friends of Felix's start against the White Sox, uh, which is a game that ended on a sort of controversial home run call. And we don't have to litigate that here because that game was a billion years ago and it's two teams no one cares about, although no one really cares about the Red Sox and the Giants at this point in the season either. But it had the vibe when they said, yeah, it's a it's a walk-off home run by Omar Navarez of just like, Look, it's September. We're very tired. It's time mm-hmm. to go home. And uh, I think that Bruce Bochy had that vibe the whole. <laughs> he's like, look, I want to win, but also I am sleepy. Yeah. Sleepy face. He's ready to call it a career at yeah. this point. He's like, we're really doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, I do wonder, we were speaking about Severino and the Yankees' piggyback plan, whether this October will really be a break from recent Octobers when it comes to pitcher usage, or whether it'll just be a continuation of the trends that we've seen in recent Octobers. Because as I've written a couple times, like October tends to be a vision of the future, and often MLB's dystopian future when it comes to like game length and strikeouts and reliance on home runs and pitching changes and using pitchers for much shorter outings playoffs at least in recent years that's when we get kind of a sneak preview of like what the regular season will look like a few years hence it's like the ghost of christmas future or something (laughs) except that we we never change anything after coming back and seeing what the future was like we just get closer and closer to it every year and so if you look at like the playoffs from i don't know several years ago and maybe the percentage of innings going to relievers and the strikeout rate and that sort of thing eventually the regular season catches up to what the playoffs looked like a few years ago because you have the best teams kind of the cutting edge teams tend to be playing in october you have more strikeouts you have just teams kind of managing in a way where they really place an emphasis on winning every single game and so they're pulling out all the stops and they're kind of showing you how you win in baseball if you're really desperate to win and in the regular season of course there are other considerations about resting guys and and not using them in quite the same way but we are getting closer and closer to that so this year I wonder whether the Yankees and the Rays and other teams that might go more toward that model, like how many bullpen games are we going to see? I mean, last year... be a lot, I think. Yeah. Last year, the A's did a bullpen game in the wild card game, or they tried to. It didn't go so well. That was a staff that was very reliant on its bullpen and just didn't really have a starting pitcher who you would want to have starting in a a must-win single game. But you could see them, you could see the Rays, you could see the Yankees, you could see all of these teams, not all of them, like there are some teams obviously that have great traditional starting rotations like the Astros, the Nationals. They can throw three or four guys at you who would be very daunting to face in, let's say, a division series, but... There are going to be bullpen games more than ever before, probably this October. So if you don't like that, 
get used to it because we're going to get a lot of it. I wonder if I would be interested in being able to identify a couple of casual, like quite casual baseball fans. So like fans who've maybe watched 10 total games over the course of the entire season and put them in, you know, like an awkward CNN style focus group and just watch them react to yeah. I mean, probably the baseball more than anything, right? Like the the actual ball, like how many home runs we're likely to see. Um, mm-hmm. The the pitching changes, I think, will be uh, bountiful and probably inspire a reaction. But I am curious. You know, this is our biggest look in audience of the entire year, and there's some stuff that I think will be, you know, that we we have talked a lot about how you don't necessarily notice it in any given game, but. The announcers are going to talk a lot about it. It's going to be the only game you watch, and it's going to be all of our, all the trends we've seen on steroids. That's a loaded (laughs) phrase in baseball, but it's going to be that, you know, dialed up to 11. And I'm very curious, like, what the tip, what a very casual baseball fan's impression of the sport is Mm -hmm. um, based on that. And I think I would like to get that impression with the game sound turned off so that the announcers are not influencing <laughs> yeah. that because I bet there will be a lot of commentary yeah. on that as well. Yeah, it would be interesting to see like they do during debates sometimes yeah. where you have like the, the real the time. groups. Yeah, the focus yeah. group where they're just like, oh, I like this person because they said this thing. Oh, right. no, I'm turning on this person now. And yeah, that would be kind of interesting to see in baseball. I feel like I saw a study about this at some point using MLB TV data maybe at Saber seminar or some sort of data, but that'd be interesting to just be able to see, like, okay, what actually turns people off about right. baseball? Like, either literally, when do they turn the game off, or just in terms of their real time reactions to it? Is it just like this pitching change was the straw that, that broke my back? This pushed me over the edge. I can't watch anymore because we had a fifth pitching change, or is it like a sixth homer? Does that actually negatively affect people's perception? of things or is it strikeouts or is it just taking too long between pitches what is it exactly that leads to that negative reaction i feel like that would be pretty telling because we're all kind of just guessing most of the time about what people actually like and dislike about baseball right and you know I mean, you and I are definitely not going to turn it off anyway. But even yeah. if we were not doing this professionally, like, we're we not, have to. <laughs> right? We're not the tur- we're not the turn off people. Mm-hmm. They've already won. They've captured me. Yeah. But other people have other choices. <laughs> they can make different choices in their lives yeah. if they want to. And so I would be curious what sort of choices they would make. Because you know, I don't know that casual fans are necessarily who we have to cater the aesthetic or direction of the game to, because. They are casual, right? They're they're a looking audience, often just in October. But I think that it is an it would be an interesting sort of sanity check for some of our assumptions about the direction that the game is going to hear from observers who probably won't be able to name a lot of the people on the rosters that they're watching, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, that's all the banter I've got. There is something else that we have to briefly discuss before we get to some emails. Yeah, I feel like we should at least mention this terrible situation in Pittsburgh with Vasquez. I, I It's an odd thing to to talk about because it's so obviously terrible right? and it feels like it should be so obviously terrible that we 
don't grapple with it because we all know that this is like an awful thing, but it does feel like it merits mention. I will say that, you know, I was relieved that the the response that the pirates were able to give at least to their fans in and around the ballpark seemed to be very decisive, right? Like his banners were taken down. They pulled the scorecards mm-hmm. that had his imagery on it. And I just, you know, these sorts of things are so terrible and the people that they affect the most directly, both in the incident themselves and then in the people who have a strong emotional reaction to it, tend to be the ones that are thought of the least often, um, which is, you know, the his victim in this case and then survivors. And so to see that sort of... We can all just uh, show greater care when it comes to how we talk about this stuff. And so I I was at least encouraged to see that there was some attempt. Uh, you know, he's still on the roster, I guess, though technically on administrative leave. But, you know, there was an attempt to sort of exhibit that standard of care here. And it's just a weird one because you, you kind of – people were asking me in my chat, what do you think the pirates are going to do and my response was just, well, hopefully the pirates aren't going to be in a position to do anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like if these allegations prove to be true and the list of charges is quite long, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully that this is something that is taken out of their hands entirely and he faces the kinds of consequences he needs to and hopefully the young woman involved gets the support she needs. So yeah. I don't know, it just felt like a thing we should mention, but it's yeah. what a, I mean, putting that within the context of the pirate season seems so misguided but it's just you know it's an awful thing and i hope that everyone continues to behave in a way that is thoughtful toward people who have a lot invested and have personal stakes that are often uh brought to bear even when it's someone else who's uh, a victim so anyway that's what i wanted to say yeah in this case as opposed to many of the domestic violence cases this seems like something that the legal system may actually handle and thus it will not be left in the baseball team's hands which is ideal i think baseball teams should do a better job than they have done historically at handling that sort of case too but it is kind of a difficult situation often for those teams to be placed in and and to have to be the one that sort of prosecutes because the law is not equal to the task. And in this case, it seems to be, at least based on what has been reported and released so far, that, yeah, maybe it, it will not be left to the pirates to make this decision. Although maybe in this case, uh, there are different societal standards, obviously, surrounding these different crimes for for better or worse. And this is such a a sickening thing that even if it were left to the baseball team, I don't know that they would make the the wrong choice in this case. But, uh, you know, the, the circumstances are almost irrelevant when it comes to an alleged crime like this, but it seems almost extra sickening just based on what's been reported about how this began and how reportedly it happened at a baseball game. The first contact was made, which... Again, obviously, the crime itself is just as horrible. However, it happens. But the fact that, I mean, just the image of it happening at a baseball game, because I guess the picture of players and kids interacting at a game is among the more wholesome and happy things that you can conjure to your mind. And so 
to think of something that started that way turning into this predatory atrocity is just even more terrible so we'll see how this develops but based on what we have seen so far I don't know that we will have to reckon with the idea of Vasquez in a baseball uniform again in the future. Yeah I think that that decision and sort of set of circumstances is likely to be taken out of all of our hands which is um, the way that this stuff is supposed to work so Mm -hmm. yeah All right, so let us do some emails. This is a question from Stefan, who is a Patreon supporter. I have this theory I have been thinking about, which is that if Mike Trout didn't exist, Mookie Betts would be the beneficiary of the kind of impressive early career attention that Trout is otherwise receiving. However, because he's in Trout's shadow, and maybe because so much of his value comes from fielding, I don't see nearly as much attention to his early career war accumulation as I'd expect. I see that he's 17th in career war through his current age since integration on fan graphs. I don't have the ability to query for this on baseball reference, but I know they're even more favorable on his war thus far. This is impressive, but it's also a little bit less impressive when you look at other names around him, like Andrew Jones and Cesar Cedeno and Grady Sizemore, who did not keep up their top 20s careers and fell off from their early career performance. I remember the Andrew Jones home run king hype, so I don't want to fall into a similar trap with Mookie Betts, but do you see his early career performance as more likely to fall into the Jones and Sizemore camp, or more likely to fall into the camp of other Hall of Famers with great early careers? I'm leaning toward thinking he'll fall off since so much of his value in war comes from incredible defense and that won't sustain into his 30s, but I want to believe that I'm watching another no-doubter first ballot Hall of Famer in his prime. Wow. Well, we can we can provide a little more context around the the question of at least who he falls into this category with. So Jay wrote about bets within the context of what the, the Red Sox might do with him next year, which is sort of a bummer. But he looked at the highest position player where this is using Fangraphs war through an age 26 season since 1993. And Trout is number one. Alex Rodriguez comes in at two. Then we have Pujols. Then yes, we do have Andrew Jones. And then there's and then there's Betts at five, and Bryce Harper at six, and Manny Machado mm-hmm. at seven, and it goes on. I think it's sort of it's always sort of silly to talk about a 26 year old who isn't Mike Trout <laughs> within the context of Hall of Fame talk. But I am sympathetic to the argument that some of that a good deal of his value, Betts' value, I should say, comes from defense, but it isn't as if he's a slouch at the plate, you know? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, he has a career 135 WRC+. plus. He's he's having a down year uh, from his MVP season by having a 135 WRC+, plus so far this season. So I, I don't know that anyone's a no-doubter at 26 because so much can transpire between that age and the end of their careers and you know he could be he could be injured he could become less effective all sorts of things could happen but he's on a good trajectory and he does seem to be at least of of this current sort of mid-20s crop the the most obvious beneficiary although i imagine even though i think the pace is is less impressive that if there were no mike trout we would probably also talk a great deal more about francisco lindor than we do but that would probably be as much about performance as it is about him just being a dynamic and interesting dude. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think Betts would be probably toward the top of that list. He's yeah. he's uh, engaging. He's really good. He plays for the Red Sox. All of those seem, things seem to combine to suggest that he would be probably the most notable, right? The most notable baseball player? Is that crazy? Yeah, well, I think that I wouldn't really compare him to Andrew Jones, even though the wars are comparable through that age. It's true. 
But if you want to talk about more of the war coming from defense, Jones, I think, is much more skewed in that direction than Betts is. Jones, through age 26, had a 113 WRC plus, and as you just mentioned, Betts had a 135. And there's some debate about was Andrew Jones as incredibly otherworldly great as a center fielder as the stats seem to suggest, and is it fair to compare across eras when you have players from times with much more primitive stats and not as granular defense and you're comparing guys from the baseball dark ages to Jones and then Jones to guys today where we have these zone-based stats and stat cast-based stats. So it's not quite a clean comparison. I think Jones was a great outfielder and if he had aged better and declined more gracefully, then he would be a Hall of Famer. He's pretty close to one as it is. And I think Betts is a better player. He didn't come up quite as early as Jones, so Jones had a a head start there when it came to accruing career war. But if you look at like the modern era, so going back to 1901, Betts ranks 30th among all hitters in career war through age 26. And Almost everyone above him is a Hall of Famer. Almost everyone around him is a Hall of Famer. So if you had to bet whether Mookie will make the Hall or not, historically speaking, you'd absolutely have to say that he will. He is very much on a pace to do that. And there are guys around him who did not end up making it, not just Jones, but Cesar Cedeno, Veda Pinson. Those are a couple very oft-cited examples of guys who were on Hall of Fame trajectories in their 20s and then just didn't do much or not nearly enough in their 30s to to get them there. But that is the exception, really, when you've been as good as Betts has been through this point in his career. That tends to lead to a Hall of Fame career, and I would bet on it leading to one for (laughs) Mookie. No pen intended. I but. Didn't, it wasn't even me. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. me that did it. It was you. <laughs> yes. So I'd also say Sam answered this via email, and he was saying that he thinks that maybe having Trout around has actually benefited Mookie in that it has made us focus more on war. Mm-hmm. And Mookie is a guy who benefits from looking at a holistic stat as opposed to the standard stats, although his standard stats are also very good. But yep. I think there's some truth to that. But yeah, if we didn't have Trout, maybe we'd make more of Mookie just because he'd be the best thing going. Like since he came up, I think Trout has been by far the most valuable player in baseball, but then Mookie is second. And I think there's a sizable gap, if I remember correctly, between Mookie and the next best guy. So Mookie would be, I think, the acknowledged best player in baseball if Trout were not around. So I guess in that sense, he suffers from the comparison, but maybe also he benefits in that we pay closer attention to the stats that make Mookie look the best. Yeah, I think that that is. I think that that is right. He is. He has so often been the the appropriate foil over the course of his his career to Trout uh, that. I think he has gotten attention that he would have merited on his own, to be clear. Like, it is not as if Mookie Betts wouldn't be noteworthy were it not for Trout's existence. But I I think that having, especially, you know, in a season like last season where there was that sense that, okay, he might actually outpace Trout this year, I think it does uh, benefit him 
they do end up a little more clumped than I think you remember. Gosh, the, my chart is so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From 2014, this is just on the position player side, obviously, mm-hmm. but from 2014, which is Betts' first like real season in the bigs, to 2019, Trout, 52.4 war by Fangraphs war. Mookie Betts, 36.8. <laughs> and, and who's then, next? Uh, Josh Donaldson comes in 33.1. So uh-huh. okay, a little yeah. bit closer. Mm-hmm. They end up clumped a little bit, but yeah, man. My chow, pretty good. Yep. All right. Question from Jake. I was thinking about Sam's whole baseball time machine and about the baseball my kid will be watching, which got me thinking about how you all talk from time to time about quote-unquote fake baseball. I know fake baseball was the late 19th or early 20th century. I don't always know what the time frame is, but when you talk about inventing the single motion catch and throw, I know that it applies. My question is, what will my kid think was fake baseball when he gets older? Or when will the baseball we are currently watching be considered fake baseball? And does that differ from, say, the early 2000s? So, yeah, we we joke from time to time about how very early baseball is like barely baseball in the sense that we discuss it today, whether because the rules were different or because the quality of play was just so much lower. Sam will sometimes say that real baseball began in 1988 because that's when we have pitch-by-pitch data and maybe that's when the caliber of competition got close enough in his mind that you can kind of make that comparison so we're sort of joking but sort of not because the baseball players today are so much better than they used to be and i guess the question is then at what point does today's baseball look as like lowly compared to modern day baseball as say early baseball looks compared to today i think that the answer is going to be very disheartening to both of us which is that (laughs) i think it's as soon as we have a robo zone Mm. i think the transition to a robo zone is going to once an entire generation of fan has grown up not knowing what it is to have an umpire calling balls and strikes behind the plate, I think they're yeah. going to look back and say, what on earth were you guys doing? <laughs> yeah. And you could have started. Now, we know what the technical limitations of the current RoboZone are. So I'd, I am I am going to um, sort of like be, be a little bit hyperbolic here for, to make the point. But they're going to say, and you could have done it earlier than you did. And you mm-hmm. just sat there with that imperfection for years and years and years and that's yeah. i think i think that they will uh look back and find us a little bit silly i think it'll it'll read differently than say you know when we think about baseball looking like baseball you know people draw lines as you mentioned in a bunch of different places i think you know the place where we really start to feel like competition began to approach what it could be was after integration right it's this artificial Mm -hmm. thing that there was an entire population that wasn't able to play and so it'll read differently than that will but i think that it will it'll seem very antiquated it'll be like It'll probably be akin to like the forward pass in football. I'll be like, what mm-hmm. are you talking about? You had to guess and a guy <laughs> could steal a strike. He could yeah. just take it like yeah. a thief getting a pie <laughs> off a windowsill. Like I, I think that that's going to be, I just like not, no one has stolen a pie off a windowsill. And like, I don't know that, that to be clear, I don't know that that ever happened. <laughs> I think it might be pretend, but I think that that will be a thing where young people look back and are like, oh, it's like, 
you existed before the internet or something, you know? Yeah, that is a really good point. Yeah, baseball before that will start to seem very quaint and archaic probably once that happens and once you get used to it. Although I will say that that won't necessarily change the game itself dramatically. Like it it certainly will change how we perceive the game, how we watch the game, but like how the game is played and the quality of the players playing won't necessarily shift dramatically based on that. So that's one argument for maybe that change not being quite as dramatic. And I don't know that it will change like the style of play all that much. Like certainly for catchers it will, but based on like the Atlantic League this year, it seems like in the second half of the season, since they've been using the robot umps, the strikeout rates and the walk rates and all and, and the level of offense just hasn't really changed all that dramatically. It it basically looks like baseball did before, except that the umps aren't calling the balls and strikes. So yeah, maybe in terms of fan perception, that will change things. But the game on the field, I don't know that it will seem like such a, a clean break. I think that when we wrote the MVP machine, one thing we did was try to look at the level of play over time. And that can be tricky because, of course, players are always playing against their contemporaries. And so it's difficult to assess how much better one year's players or one decade's players are than another's. But There are various ways you can do it, and we had one method in the last full chapter of the book that showed that, yes, the quality of play has obviously increased dramatically over time and steadily over time, and it looked like it had plateaued about 15 years or so ago, and then since then, the quality of play has been increasing about as rapidly as it ever has at at almost any point in baseball history whether that's because of Moneyball or because of new player development practices, players are just getting better about as quickly as they ever have. And so if that continues, then we will get to a point where players are noticeably better. And obviously the game itself is changing very quickly in terms of how it's played on the field. So that's one thing, like it's just difficult to make comparisons like when we were talking about Sonny Gray and Nolan Ryan earlier in this episode or about how the playoffs will look different this year it's just kind of tough to look back at earlier eras of pitcher usage and actually make comparisons there because the jobs were so different so I don't know whether those jobs and the tactics that we see in game will continue to change at the pace that they have been for the past 10 years or so with shifting and strikeouts and home runs and pitcher usage and all of that evolving so rapidly. Maybe we're at a a point where that's all happening all at once and it will start to slow down. I don't know. Or maybe we'll see rules changes that make other tactics and strategies more favorable and then we'll go back to those things and so it's very possible that things will just look a lot different in not too long the one thing i would say is that we are able to quantify player performance now much better than we could in the past so yeah there's like a lot of debate about well how hard were guys actually throwing in the 1920s or whatever how hard did walter johnson throw how hard did bob feller throw and there are all these methods that people used at the time to try to assess that that have varying degrees of reliability and now i think maybe you'll look at like 2008 like the advent of the pitch tracking era 
as a separate era because we can actually quantify how hard were guys throwing and how much were their pitches moving. And and now with StatCast since 2015, we can say how hard are guys hitting the ball and how hard are they running and all those things. So all the stuff that we speculate about now when it comes to the athleticism of today's players versus earlier eras, we will be able to answer those questions now so we can really answer the question of how much better are the players in 2050 than the players in 2015 because we will have been measuring at least some of the same things with a high degree of accuracy. So maybe that's something that will enable us to actually like set cutoffs Mm -hmm. with some reasonable criteria and say players are x percent better now than they used to be well and i think that we'll probably just to unpack that a little bit more like whoever figures out the great advance in defensive metrics i think will probably have a great deal to do with that right because all of the public facing like it's fine they're fine they do a fine job but they they're not great like, I don't think anyone say that they're great. There's room for improvement, and we have the means, right? Because <laughs> we know where they are now. Yep. So, I don't know why I'm so sing songy this episode, but I think <laughs> that we, especially, that we will probably see particular benefit on the, on the fielding side mm-hmm. where we can do a better job of accounting for, hopefully, in the coming years with very smart people who will probably be smarter than me, you know, be able to give a, a better single number to defensive performance that accounts for all sorts of things that are tricky to account for, like positioning and, and whatnot. So that yeah. would be cool. Yeah. Or what if we get to some breakthrough in injury prevention or yeah. treatment and pitchers don't have Tommy John surgery, they don't blow out their elbows anymore, yeah. or we have nanites or something so that you can repair a hamstring strain overnight and players don't have to be day-to-day anymore. Everyone's just uh, at full strength all the time. That sort of thing, even if it's just like preventing career-ending injuries for pitchers, let's say, that would be a a dramatic difference where you'd have to like compare careers of players who played in an era when careers could just get cut short versus the era where careers could go on as long as the talent allowed them to go on. So. That's going to be really tricky if you get to the point where we can just like repair elbow damage or shoulder damage, like the the normal fraying and lack of elasticity that happens to all players as they throw thousands of pitches or get older. Like what if you can have like a 20-year-old arm when you're 35 or something? Then, uh, I mean, that will change human civilization in in many ways, not just baseball, but that will make it kind of difficult to compare like aging curves and who knows. I mean, the aging curves today are are even different from what they were 10, 20 years ago with players coming up and being so good right away and then seeming to decline more quickly. So it's kind of tough to set a cutoff, but I don't know if I had to guess at a time when like the baseball of today seems kind of antiquated or we look back and say yeah but players then weren't what they are now like when is that now when when do we do that now i guess sam does it with 1988 but you know do we do that with players in like the 90s or something or does that still seem recent enough i mean we were watching baseball then right. maybe it's like when depends how old you were maybe yeah. because when you were actually watching it you don't want to admit that you were watching an inferior product or inferior athletes or it just seems like 
things couldn't have changed that dramatically because it's within your own lifespan and your your baseball watching period. I think the thing that we probably make note of the most often sort of within eras is the velocity spike, right? Like the average fastball being what it is now compared to what it was, you know, in the 90s when we were watching baseball as kids. I think that's probably the place where we note the difference in the game the most often just because it's so, it is quite stark Mm -hmm. and it's easy to point to. But yeah, I think that there are probably things that we're missing because it's hard to reflect on change over the course of one's life while you're in it. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. this is why we all get very emotional during retirements or people being demonstrably less good because we're forced to confront that sort of uh, passage of time mm-hmm. <laughs> contemporaneously, <laughs> which makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Speaking of which, <laughs> Felix's oh. last start is what, next Thursday? Next or? Thursday. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Man, so I'm I'm going to write about him mm-hmm. for the site for next week uh and I think Jay has something kind of planned too. But I will say that on Saturday as I mentioned I saw Felix start against the White Sox. It was also the Mariners commemorated Ichiro's retirement and yeah. Ichiro spoke. Mm-hmm. And I was with friends who, you know, who grew up here in Seattle and went to high school with me and uh but they are not uh, baseball people in the same way that I am. And I, you know, I got, I had some feelings <laughs> about that day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they, uh, they looked at me a little funny for the feelings <laughs> that I had. But um, uh-huh. yeah, the Mariners announced the final Kings court. And my niece started preschool this year and my younger brother turned 21 and neither of those things hit me quite as hard as, <laughs> which is probably thing i should talk to a professional about but anyway it uh it's a very it's a very strange thing i won't i won't go into it too much because i am gonna write about it i am gonna write about it you guys but um it is a it's sad well we'll talk about that next week i imagine all right i've got a couple more here This one is from Dan. He says, I am currently a graduate student at Ohio University, and this morning my professor said something I found quite thought-provoking. We were talking about the building of Petco Park, since it's a class about facility and event management, when my professor segued by saying, nobody cares about the San Diego Padres except for Padres fans. This sort of threw me back a little bit, simply because I immediately thought about Fernando Tatis Jr., Manny Machado, Chris Paddock, Manuel Margot, and others, and how exciting their team projects to be in the future. This made me ponder the question of how long does it take for a franchise that has struggled mightily for such a long time, having last made the playoffs in 2006, to return to respectability in the minds of the average baseball fan. So how long does it take to erase the stain of a long period of losing or mediocrity? I am trying to find year-over-year Astros attendance Hmm. because they seem like a good barometer for this i think that the answer is that it can turn around pretty quickly and i think that san diego is sort of uniquely positioned for it to turn around quickly Mm. because of the other circumstances in their city and i'll get to that in a second but so the houston astros in 2012 which was a year where they won 55 games (laughs) my stars houston what a terror i know you were doing a thing but what a (laughs) <laughs> mean thing to do. Their estimated payroll that year was $37 million. Yeah. Oh, shit. It's a crime. They were 16th out of 
16th out of 16. Oh, because this was oh, the... Yeah. This is... Right. Okay. So they had a weird thing. Okay. So let's... That's still the NL. Yeah. Point. So yeah. let's just... Uh, let's let's go to the following year then. We'll go to 2013 where they won a whopping 51 games. <laughs> <laughs> and they were 13th out of 15 in the AL by attendance. The following year when they did a little bit better but not much better, 70 and 92, they were 12th. And then in 2015, right, which was the they arrived and they mm-hmm. went to the playoffs, they were 11th, and then they have steadily climbed since. So they were 8th in 2016, 6th in 2017, 3rd in 2018, and 4th so far this year, 2019. So it took, what, five years for it to really rebound? Mm-hmm. But the thing that San Diego has that Houston, for instance, and obviously this is a crude measure, but and they did win a World Series, so that helps to you know solidify the rebound of attendance. But they're the only game in town, really. I mean, this is the this is the opportunity that the Padres have, which we talked about way back at the beginning of the season, which is they could make San Diego a baseball city because Mm -hmm. they're the only of the big four professional men's leagues. They're the only one there. They don't have the NFL to compete with. There's no basketball. So I think that if they put a good competitive team on the field and make the playoffs, I think that it might rebound fairly quickly because they're a great thing to rally around. They have these wonderful dynamic players, many of whom, you know, are sort of demographically similar to a lot of the people who live in San Diego. And so you're going to have this great sense of community between the team and the city potentially. So I just think that they have a really, they have a really cool opportunity ahead of them to be a significant part of the cultural landscape of that city. Uh, And their team is well positioned to do it going forward, assuming that, you know, they keep getting return from the guys who are good and their prospects pan out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think I think that they could turn it around pretty quickly. Yeah, it was probably not inaccurate to say the professor said that nobody cares about the Padres except for Padres fans. That has certainly been true, I think, for the past 15 years or so. Uh, Over that period, the Padres were certainly the most nondescript team, I would say. Oh, yeah. Just, I mean, not necessarily the worst, but just the least attention getting. They just never really mounted a respectable run. They rarely had star players. They just really did not demand your attention if you were not a Padres fan. And even if you were, <laughs> they yeah. they didn't really demand it either. So I think that is true. And it takes some time for that perception to change, but not that much time. Like I think their record this year won't really be distinguishable from their recent records. They have 68 wins right now with 11 games to go, so they're going to end up with probably low 70-something, which will look a lot like their records from, I don't know, four or five years ago. So that doesn't really show the progress. And yeah, if you're an average baseball fan, not even really a, a Padres fan, but just a general baseball fan, you're probably not paying much more attention to the Padres right right now than you used to be. If you are a very plugged-in baseball fan, then yeah, you are, because you're watching Paddock and you're watching Tatis and you're following this farm system that they put together. And they did at least make people temporarily perk up and say, hey, the Padres, when they signed Manny Machado. Like, signing one big free agent to a deal that... Your franchise has not signed in the past and the kind of player that your franchise has not really had most of the time, 
that can at least make you the story for a day. Like yeah. the, the Padres were more of a story on the day they signed Manny Machado than they had been in years, probably. And Machado has not had one of his best seasons this year, but that just, I think, showed that, okay, things are kind of changing here. I know that Padres fans were excited about that move because there'd been a lot of complaints about ownership and their willingness to spend. And so that seemed to mark a new direction. And we had all been paying attention to the Padres more closely because of the talent that they had assembled. And so if you're a baseball fan who has your finger on the pulse of like what's coming down the pipeline in the next few years, then you've been paying a lot more attention to the Padres. And I'm sure that really serious Padres fans have been paying more attention to the team and have been more optimistic about the team because of all that talent that's on the way. But I don't think the average mainstream fan is really going to reassess a team that has been bad for a long time until that team gets good again. And the the Padres are not quite good again, although maybe they're close. But I, I think it probably is just like the first year that they're good again, that they're a playoff team. You have to pay attention to them if they're a team that is like one of the best eight or ten teams at the end of the season. If they're playing in October, like when the Astros got back to the playoffs, people were aware that the Astros were coming out of that dark time that they had, that they decided to have. So I don't think it takes all that long, really, Mm -mm. if you're paying some amount of attention to baseball to realize when things have changed. Yeah. And, you know, it's a fun, dynamic team they have for the people who actually live in San Diego. Obviously, it's a uh, this matters a lot more, but it's a beautiful ballpark. Yeah. It's just that I, I don't know. It's it's sunny there. It's a nice place to visit if you're a visiting fan. Right. Because you get to go be in California when it's dreary other places. So I think that they could uh, if if they put a winning team on the field and make the postseason, we could see it rebound pretty quickly. Yeah. All right. Last question. This is from a different Ben who says, I've just read about Aaron Judge promising a fan a home run and then going out and hitting a home run. Last month, it was Mookie Betts doing the same thing. A very quick Google search shows Hanley Ramirez, David Ortiz, and Sal Perez doing the same over the last few years. I think we deserve a story with a home run promise that does not end with a home run. This clearly happens many times for every time that a player does deliver on the promise, yet we, the fans, are kept in the dark. As insidish media people, are you aware of any home run promises oh. that were not kept and therefore not made into stories? <laughs> no, but neither am I. No. This I would <laughs> like to I would like to learn of a of a pathological home run liar. <laughs> there must be many. It's like right. it's like an extreme form of publication bias. You know, when right. you run a scientific experiment that yields some interesting results, then you get it in all the journals. And when you find something that just confirms the null hypothesis or whatever and says there's nothing to see here, then maybe that doesn't get published. Although I know that some journals are making more of an effort to publish that sort of story too. But yeah, if we wanted to be intellectually honest here, I guess we should uh, document every instance where a player promises a home run and then some poor kid is just let down because (laughs) their hero does not come through. There is the famous Seinfeld episode where 
Kramer gets Paul O'Neill to promise to hit two home runs for a kid who's in the hospital and O'Neill hits one homer and then he hits what looks like it's an inside the parker for a second homer but it turns out that it's just a triple and then he scores on an error and so the kid says it doesn't count so no no it's not that see uh it's about a little boy in the hospital i was wondering if you could do something to lift his spirits sure i can help you there yeah, yeah. well i promised him that you would hit him two home runs today <laughs> what yeah you know couple of dingers you promised a kid in the, in the hospital that i'd hit two home runs yeah well no good no it's no good it's terrible i mean you just you don't hit home runs like that it's hard to hit home runs and where the heck did you get two from well two is better than one you just, you just that's ridiculous oh, I, I mean, i'm not a home run hitter well babe ruth did it he did not oh you're saying that babe ruth was a liar i'm not calling him a liar but he wasn't stupid enough to promise two well maybe i did overextend myself how the heck did you get in here anyway I'll link to that video if you haven't seen it. That is a good one. But yeah, I I don't know. It just it doesn't really get reported. Why would it get reported? Like would the the kid or the kid's family go to the press and say, this player promised to hit my kid a homer and he didn't deliver. So I I just I don't know how that story would really get into print, (laughs) but it must happen very often. Yeah, I just don't. I think that I would I would be so chicken. And I would yeah. play it so safe. Me too. I think I think if I were going to promise a young and like like often when it's kids, like they're sick kids. I know. Like they're not right. doing you know, it's like they're like there for like make a wish or something. So it's like you really don't want to mess with that. Yep. It's very serious. So I yeah. think I would be inclined to promise like I'm you're gonna have a great time. Cause like they will. <laughs> kids yeah. love going to baseball games. That's a very safe promise. Especially if you are if you are interacting with a, a baseball player beforehand, you're already having a great time because you got to talk to a professional baseball player, so you're feeling pretty great. Yep. But I cannot imagine because what do you do? Do you walk over after and say like, actually, I was trying to teach you a lesson in disappointment and recovering from like small uh, bits <laughs> yeah. of sadness? Like, what are right. you gonna say? Yeah, I was gonna like. <laughs> there could be some value in that, I guess, if it were not a sick kid. If it <laughs> were just so like often a, sick kids. I know that's the thing. If it were just a regular kid, it's like, look, you know, in life sometimes you have to get used to disappointment, and and I can't move heaven and earth, and uh, my powers are only so limited. Like it, it almost be a, a valuable lesson to say, look, I'm a major league player. I'm among the best in the world at what I do, and yet even I can't hit home runs on command. But if you're talking about a kid who's like in the hospital, it's like, is there actually value in, in saying that to that kid? Probably not. You want to tell that kid maybe that like dreams can come true and the improbable can happen. So, yeah, I don't know what the best thing to do is here. There was a, a Fangraphs post last month, I think Justin yeah. Clue wrote yeah. about home runs and the history of promising homers. I, I don't think he had any in there that were promised that were not delivered on as i recall but yeah he struggled he he did attempt to find some and uh-huh. struggled to to do so as i yeah. recall in, in that editorial process he was like oh, that's, yeah you have to write about it if you don't yeah the other thing he pointed out is that like not only is it hard to hit home runs but players always say that it's even harder when you're really trying to hit them yeah. <laughs> and so if you have promised a sick kid that you're going to hit a home run then that's going to be on your mind and then you're going to be really trying to do it and that will probably make it even less likely that you do it although i guess if you are going to make that promise this would be the year make all your home or hitting promises before they change the ball back. If I were a player, I do not think I would ever promise a kid. I would just say, like, look, 
the next time I do hit a home run, that I one's will, for you. Yeah, that's for you. I'll yeah. I'll dedicate it to you. Like I'll I'll make some special motion when I cross the plate, and you'll know that I'm thinking of you when I hit it or something like that. And that would be nice, right? Yeah. That that would still be cool for a kid, and then there wouldn't be yeah. any disappointment unless I never hit a home run again. But yeah, that's what I would do it's like still a nice little tribute and the kid still feels good but you don't feel this overwhelming pressure to deliver in that moment i i would definitely chicken out and not do that either the bar the bar for kids being entertained by stuff yeah is pretty low like you know it's pretty low my niece has watched moana like a million times and (laughs) she doesn't get a lot of screen time and she's still seen that movie like a billion times it's just gonna keep going up the number's just gonna keep getting bigger (laughs) so like kids are entertained by all sorts of things Mm -hmm. and i think of a little kid heard from aaron judge the next home run that one's for you buddy and then aaron judge did it that kid would lose their mind they would be so joyful because they would know that one was for me i don't think it's such an easy it's so much safer it's just so much safer <laughs> yeah. I would be so afraid of disappointing the little kid. I would be the worst baseball player. I mean, I would be the worst <laughs> baseball player like from a skill perspective, but like if I would be a mess so much of the time. It wouldn't be good. It would yeah. be, it would be or, bad. Or like I'll I'll scratch your initials in the yeah. dirt at home plate or I'll uh, I don't know, I'll write something on my batting gloves yeah. or my helmet or something or my cap and you'll see this message that I have or you know, I'll I'll wave to you or something. People are like endlessly entertained by like their friends sitting behind home plate waving when they yeah. get good seats, right? So what if you are a player and you're like, I'll wave to you when I'm in the batter's box or something and that would be a, a nice thing. The kid would think that would be super cool, probably just as cool as hitting a home run. So yeah, yeah I'm not saying we should retire the the home run promise, but you're just I saying that people it. should be you sh- you're just saying that people should be more comfortable being cowards is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be more comfortable with your cowardice. I would be. Can can I tell you a thing speaking sure. of people who wave that has started to <laughs> Uh, I'm a mess. It has started to provoke actual anxiety in me when I watch okay. baseball games. <laughs> so sometimes people are waving at the camera because they know where the broadcast cameras are. And they're like, hey, I'm saying hi to my mom at home. I'm mm. saying hey to my buddy. Sometimes you will see people waving across the ballpark. And it appears that they are trying to attract the attention of someone else in the ballpark. Uh-huh. Have you ever made yeah. notice of this? Yeah. I would like it to be a law that the broadcast has to find that person and <laughs> let me them. know if they found each other. <laughs> I worry about it. I'm like, that person's phone probably died. That yeah. That's their other buddy in section 145. They're trying <laughs> to meet up for a beer. They don't know if they can find each other. The waving does not seem like it could possibly work, but mm. I would like the broadcast camera to alleviate this source of stress that I've yeah. allowed to creep don't into my life. In suspense about whether these people have made contact or not. Yeah, that's a good point. Is it a good point? Well, <laughs> it's a it very big point, point at, the, yeah. at the very least. <laughs> All right. We've talked enough, I think. I think that's probably true. All right. Enjoy the AFL, and we will discuss it next week. Thanks. I will bring my mic. You will get a live report. <laughs> cool. 
All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, signing up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get yourself access to some perks. We will be doing our two usual live stream conversations during playoff games this year. So if you want to get in on those and watch a couple games with me and Megan Sam, you should sign up for Patreon this month. Following five listeners already have done so. A listener who goes only by T, Sean Muir, I Isaac Hess, Zach Works, and Andrew Diaz. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. You can send us your comments and questions via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Your ratings and reviews for the book are appreciated as well. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. I think it will be a fun one. Of course, we plan for all of them to be fun ones. So we will talk to you a little later this week. I'm sorry, but I'm just thinking of right words to say. <laughs>